Welcome to Inspirational Tales. When my guests on this podcast experience the most challenging times of their lives, they use these hardships to learn, grow and better themselves. And as a result, they are now thriving in life. Their stories are ones of resilience, strength and overcoming adversity. So sit back and join me as we celebrate them turning their challenges into triumphs. My guest on this episode is Sarah Carley. In 2021, Sarah made her Olympic debut in Tokyo when she represented Australia in the 400 metre hurdles. But Sarah nearly didn't make it to the Olympic Games at all because only five months earlier, she had a freak accident in the gym, which required life-saving surgery and many weeks of rest afterwards. Sarah's surgeon told her to basically forget about the Olympics, but Sarah's body recovered much quicker than anticipated, allowing her to represent her country in the sport that she loves. In this interview, Sarah shares her journey from taking up little athletics as a child to taking a few years away from athletics as a young adult and then falling back in love with it all over again. She then shares her journey from the gym accident to the Tokyo Olympics and what she's working towards for the future. This interview gives an insight into what it is like to be an elite athlete, including the highs and lows that come along with it. Sarah is a ball of positive energy and I can't wait to see all that she will be able to achieve in the future. Hi Sarah, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. How are you? I'm good, thank you, and thanks for having me. I'm really excited. So I always like to start my interviews back at the beginning. So if you could take us back to your childhood and explain to us a bit about what it was like and how you got into athletics. Well, I had actually a really great childhood. I have a twin sister. So yeah, so I grew up with a default best friend my whole life, which is a pretty unique experience. (laughs) And I had a younger brother, James, who's four and a half years younger than me. So the three of us were all really close. So um, we did a lot together growing up, you know, super sporty or really competitive. So we had a great time. And I actually was a dancer originally. Oh. Yeah, I started dancing from the age of five. Anyone who has a child in dancing knows what a full-on sport that one is. So um, I did that. And then I think I was about eight and a advertisement came home in our school newsletter and my mum saw it and kind of asked, you know, if me and my sister wanted to do it. And being twins, we made a, a group decision because we did everything together. Yeah, so I started athletics at about the age of eight. So between dancing and running, I was very, very busy growing up, um, which I, I loved. I wouldn't imagine having it any other way. Like I loved little athletics. Growing up, I was never the kid that – I wasn't like some superstar kid that won everything. I was the kid that got 100% participation because I had to go to athletics every single week. I started doing hurdles originally, but I was really, really tiny. I'm quite a small person now, but growing up I was even more so. And I gave it away for a few years and went to distance running actually and then – At about 15, I started back with hurdles just through the school system doing 200 hurdles and that's when I met my hurdle coach, Mel. She was 18 and I was 15 at the time, so I'm still with her. I've been with her for 12 years now. Oh, wow. Yeah, so we have a fantastic relationship and like the natural progression from 200 hurdles is 400 hurdles and within 12 months, I had won an Australian title for my age, so yeah, and I guess the rest is history. I kind of just took to it and had immediate success. So from the age of 15, that's when you started taking it kind of more seriously? Yeah, probably more um, more so for hurdles. I was always like a national level runner. Like I'd go to the Oz Championships for distance running and stuff. But no, like I'd never like won a medal or anything. So I guess I was taking it like kind of seriously, but not like I guess 
like I wasn't like winning medals and stuff. All right. So from the age of 15, you were saying how you were taking it quite seriously, the hurdles. Um, And then when you turned 17, you had an injury and you took a step away from the sport. So can you explain to us what happened around that time? Uh, So it wasn't like this active decision that I had made to kind of, you know, step away from sport. At 16, I went overseas and competed at the World Youth Championships, which is the under-18 championships, and I got second um, in the world for my age. Oh, wow. Yes. Congratulations. Thanks. Yeah, it's a long long time ago now. But, (laughs) yeah, and that was like a fantastic experience and I'd only been doing the 400 hurdles for like 18 months and the following year I qualified for the World Junior Championships, which is the under-18s, and, you know, the goal was to win a gold medal because I had won silver and I – suffered a navicular stress fracture which is a a a fracture in the weight bearing bone in your foot and it was my first like major um, injury as an athlete so I was overseas competing with the team and had to withdraw while I was overseas and I was like over there without my family like I was just with the team so you know 17 and going through something like that it's yeah it's a bit of a shock and up until that point I hadn't really cared about school and stuff you know because I was an athlete like I didn't (laughs) I didn't I didn't I didn't really probably try that hard at school so when I got home it was like I got home two days before my HSC trials oh yeah I'd been in Europe for five weeks so you can only imagine how much study I had done (laughs) (laughs) so I think that was a massive kind of like shock to me and made me realize that I needed to have a backup plan like I couldn't just rely on athletics I was really lucky and I I got into uni I just kind of scraped my way in and I tried really hard my first semester and was able to transfer into the degree of my choice and from there I you know really enjoyed uni well I didn't really enjoy uni but like I enjoyed having other avenues of my life to kind of focus on and athletics kind of just like progressively took a back seat. Coming back from injury is really hard. Um, I was in a moon boot for I think three months so I was like off the track for 12 months. I turned 18. I had all these other things in my life going on so it kind of just yeah it just took a back seat and it was nice to create an identity outside of sport which is like the first thing that I had ever done before and I was meeting all these new people and no one knew that I was an athlete. So I got to kind of like reintroduce myself as this other person. And I really liked that. So I think, yeah, sport just progressively took a, a bigger backseat. And, you know, being at uni is hard. Like you're trying to like work and study and you know, like your routine's all over the place. And I kind of really struggled to find time for sport. Like I tried my absolute best, but it was just, it was just hard. Like I just lost that love for it as well. So like I'd I'd go to training, but I wasn't there mentally and I was kind of just going through the process and it was just a bit of a social thing as opposed to every session counts. And I wasn't doing all those 1% and, and I did that for a couple of years. It wasn't until like 22 that I kind of, you know, fell back in love with it and stuff. Looking back on that time now, are you happy that you did that? So you got that opportunity to, to have the life outside of sport and athletics? Part of me is kind of like, oh, like imagine like how much better I could have been if I had mm-hmm. focused at that time and where would I have been now? But I think I needed to do that. And like I did the whole like went out with my friends and, you know, like it wasn't a huge like party phase or anything, but I went out and just didn't feel guilty about it. So I think I needed to do that. And I think I 
love and appreciate sports so much more because I was able to take that step back. And yeah, I was really lucky that like my parents and my coach and the people around me allowed me to have that space to work out who I wanted to be as a person as well. Um, like between the ages of 18 and 22, like you don't know who you are, like, and you're trying to kind of work out what you want to do with your life. So I do not regret it. And I think I'm in the position I am now because I took that time to, you know, explore other avenues of my life. And what made you decide to start taking it a bit more seriously again? Uh, So just before I, I think it was my last semester of uni, I got a full-time job working at a financial advice firm. I did finance at uni, so it was kind of, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I was like, oh, I'll just try this avenue. And having like that routine, that nine to five routine back in my life, I think is what kind of allowed me to start taking sport a bit more seriously. I was hanging around with 40 and 50 year olds as opposed (laughs) to like 20 year old uni students. So I was now in this adult professional environment and, you know, everyone would go home and hang out with their kids in the afternoon. So like I would go to training and I think having like that routine and that structure back in my life. I think that's what allowed me to kind of, you know, start training again and enjoying being at training. And it was just like, again, like it was just like this natural progression that I kind of started to fall back in love with it. And I I still remember like the exact moment that I was like, yep, I want to come back and do this properly. And what was that moment? It was at the Australian Championships in 2017. So I was still going to nationals and stuff and still making finals. I just wasn't properly doing it. And but the World Youth Championships, I ran a 58.0 and that was my PB and that was my PB from the age of 16 and I didn't run a PB until I was 22 and I remember I was at the Nationals, I wanted to make the final and I wanted to go under 60 seconds and I was standing on the start line and I was like, I want to break 60 seconds and I hadn't had that drive and that hunger to be like, I want to do this. I broke 60 seconds for the first time I ran 60 seconds off barely any proper training. Like imagine what I can do. And yeah, and it was the year before the Commonwealth Games. And I was like, I think with 12 months, like I have a crack at making Com Games next year. So before we get into talking about that and the, and the Olympics, which you obviously went to as well, we often hear about high profile athletes on the news and everything. Athletes that have huge sponsorship deals, have big incomes, all of this sort of stuff. But can you take us through a bit about what it's like, what the reality of being an up-and-coming athlete is actually like in terms of challenges, what you have to go through, your training, trying to juggle life, all of, all of that sort of thing? So probably the, the first thing to kind of note, I don't get paid as an elite athlete. I know when I tell people I've been to the Olympics and I say that I don't get paid, everyone's quite shocked. I do have a sponsor who provides me with gear and stuff, which is a massive saving. And when I go overseas, you know, the trip is paid for and and stuff like that. So you are funded. Um, But a lot of the time, the expenses for being an athlete come out of my own pocket. And I do work part-time, which is a decision um, that I have made recently to kind of, you know, focus on my athletics in preparation for the Paris Olympics. So that's, again, that's a cost that I have made. Uh, so it's like a, a cost to myself, but yeah, so there's, there's not a lot of financial support, um, in athletics at all. And yeah, I think the sacrifice that I have made is to like earn a part-time salary instead of a full-time one. How difficult is it to work while you're training? 
It depends on what you do. So I'm very lucky. I'm, I'm a financial advisor and I did work really hard that first couple of years out of uni and, you know, did pretty big hours while trying to balance training and study that I'm now in a position that I can work 22 hours a week and that's, that's a comfortable amount. I get to sit in an air conditioned office on my butt all day. So <laughs> I can imagine if you're someone that has to work in a bar or, in a cafe or you're like a nurse or something like it would be so difficult but I think it's good to have both I know there is a lot of athletes that are full-time and that works for them but I could not be a full-time athlete I need to have something to kind of allow my day to be a bit more structured what else do you do outside of athletics with that yeah so like I said I'm a financial advisor I work part-time at a local firm. Um, I've been an advisor for four years now and it's like it's a job that I, I absolutely love and working part-time is one of the, the hardest decisions I ever made because I did not want to work part-time. But I also do like a lot of speaking stuff. I go into schools and you know talk about my career and stuff and that's stuff that I really enjoy and I've had more of a capacity to do recently. Yeah, so that's kind of what I do outside of athletics. Yeah, it's a really good balance. I think I've finally worked out a perfect kind of um, structure for myself. Oh, that's really good to hear. Yeah. So if we do now get into your athletics, more into your athletics, and you obviously did go to the Tokyo Olympics. Can you take us through a bit about what it was like to qualify and the lead up to that, obviously before the accident that you had, uh, what that period of your life was like? In the lead up to the Olympics, Everyone knows the Olympics initially got postponed. So I was in the process of qualifying. I hadn't yet run my qualifying standard, but we were quite confident that I would do it. So when the Olympics got postponed, obviously like a lot of athletes was really gutted with the potential that it would be postponed because an eight-year Olympic cycle is just, (laughs) that's not it at all. But when COVID hit, um, we had a 10-month off-season and we saw that as an opportunity to to me to become a, a better athlete. So I got to work from home. I was, I was working uh, full-time in, I think I was working full-time, about 40 minutes from where I live. So I got to work from home. So I was just living my best life, working from home, training in the middle of the day, in the sun, like throughout the winter and stuff. So yeah, I had like the, all the tracks and stuff were shut um, in 2020, which was a bit tough, but as an off-season, we generally train on the grass anyway. So we were able to convert all my training to the grass, I was really lucky I had access to some gym equipment. So we had a home gym set up. Yeah, so I was I was living my best life <laughs> during the first lockdown. Yeah, and I was um, doing quite well. Yeah. And then what happened? Because in New South Wales, actually, I don't actually know what happened in New South Wales. I'm in Victoria and we had some of the strictest lockdowns going around. So what actually happened after that first lockdown? After the first lockdown... Yeah, like I said, we had 10 months of uninterrupted training. I think I had a few races, like just some local meets that we got put on kind of as things were opening up a little bit. Um, and I think because I'd taken so much time off from racing, I was so keen to get back on the track. And then in December of 2020, I decided to run before Christmas or four hurdles. Normally, I don't run a four hurdles until the new year. Um, but because I had spent so much time training, I was like, I'm keen to run and I came out um, at a local comp in Bankstown and ran an Olympic qualifying standard. It was my first race in 10 months. I had come off a huge base. So sometimes it can be really hard to run fast off a really big training block because your, your body's like tired. And I just felt great, ran a massive PB, hit my Olympic qualifying standard. 
and kind of just like completely shocked myself and my coach and like my family and stuff. So yeah, it was the, the, the extra 10 months of training was amazing for me. Wow. So it sounds like it actually did you well, which is good. Yeah. I, I was the fittest I have ever been like, and I, and I knew it and, and you know, when you're fit and I was, I was really fit. So you're at the top of your game. You run a PB that I believe put you as the fourth fastest in Australia of all time for the hurdles. Is that correct? Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, I think that's fourth fastest all time in Australia. Yep. Wow. Congratulations. That's amazing. But then a couple of months later, something happened that kind of set you on a different track. Can you explain to us what happened in the gym in February of 2021? So... Everything was going according to plan. I was, like I said, I was killing it at training. I was like, my confidence was just so high. And I had this routine training session in the gym in the morning before work. I was just training at a local gym in Wollongong by myself. And I was stepping up onto a box with a bar on my back when I slipped and fell. And I hit my head on the box and the bar came down and landed on my neck. So it was a 30 kilos, including the bar. And I cracked my chin open. So there was blood everywhere. And the people at the gym wanted to call an ambulance. And I was like, no, don't. No. Call an- yeah. I was like, don't, please. It was, I don't know. I just, I'm just like, it's, it's, I've just cut my chin open. It's fine. Like everyone's just being a bit dramatic. So I, ref- they wanted to call an ambulance and I wouldn't let them. So I rang my partner and he came and picked me up and took me up to Wollongong Hospital. Luckily, everything in Wollongong is like super close. So, it probably would have been faster anyway. Um, and we went straight up to emergency and I had an MRI scan. The symptoms that I had were consistent with a concussion. So they had, I had an MRI, came back all clear. It was a Thursday morning. So me and my partner were like laughing, like, I reckon we could get two days of sick leave off this, definitely. <laughs> Four day weekend. Like I was like feeling, re- I was fine. I had like the neck brace on so we were like taking photos because they're like haha how funny is this like <laughs> the positive attitude yeah well because like once they told like the MRI said it was clear so like everything was good and they were ready to discharge me and we were waiting for the doctor to come around to glue my chin up because um, it was quite a big cut and just before I was discharged I had a seizure and the last thing I remember is I started to lose feeling in my hands and my feet and the next thing so I didn't know that I'd had a seizure. And the next thing I remember is I'm being like, I'm in the bed and people are like running down the corridor and it's like in the movie when like the lights are like flashing. So that was happening and they wheeled me straight into a, a CT machine. No one would tell me like what was kind of going on, but I could tell by the look on all of the nurses' faces that something really bad had happened. And it was at that point that I was like, oh my God, like, and like I was starting to be like the Olympics, like the Olympics is in five months. And it was like, yeah, it was a quite a scary um, situation to be in. But we got the results back from the CT. So when they did the MRI, they only scanned my head. Um, and then when they did the CT, they scanned from my shoulders. And that's when I was diagnosed with what's called a carotid artery dissection. So that's an internal tear in the wall of the main artery that supplies blood to your brain. So a flap of skin had like, torn on the internal wall and was like flapping in the artery yeah so they they think that's what caused the seizure because there was a period of time where there was a blockage to the blood flow to my brain that's pretty scary yeah which caused me to seize and that's kind of why I like lost started to lose feeling in like my hands and my feet because I think that I hadn't wasn't getting enough blood flow so 
Originally, they said that dissections can heal on their own. Um, it's a really, really rare injury for someone to survive. So initially, no one really to knew survive. what. Well, so you could have died. Yeah, like people that um, the force that's required to tear an artery like that, it's generally consistent with people that have car accidents. So people don't normally survive them. This is just what I've been, I don't know anything about. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is just what I've been told. So we, I had so many doctors come and see me and every, like every time a more senior doctor came, it got the worse and worse and worse. And eventually a vascular surgeon um, by the name of Tim Newman was on call that day and he came and looked at my scans and he came in and said, we need to operate today. There's this surgery is very high risk. And what we need to do is we need to take a vein. So we need to harvest a vein out of your thigh and we need to put it into your neck to repair this artery. Because if we don't, and that flap of skin breaks off, it'll go to your brain and you will have a stroke. So I was like, okay, like, (laughs) so yeah. And he said, there's about a 10% chance you're going to have permanent brain damage. Like that's the risk of this surgery. So what are you thinking then? You've gone from thinking, oh, everything's fine. I've just, you know, grazed my chin to being told that you've got a chance of brain injury and stroke and not surviving yeah so it was like like it was a pretty like and because I'd had this seizure I was like a bit kind of foggy so it was just it feels like a bit of a dream now because it just happened so quickly but um, I remember asking him well like what happens if you don't operate because like what happens if you just leave it and he said if we do not operate now you will likely have a stroke within hours it's going to be fatal Oh my goodness. So I was like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> looks like scary. We're, looks like we're operating. So yeah, he, he said we have 20 minutes and he left to go and prep himself for surgery. So the nurse just was like cutting my clothes off, like pulling on the socks, like everyone was like rushing. Um, yeah. And they wheeled me straight in. I said goodbye to my partner and my mum had arrived at that time and I said goodbye to them and yeah, they wheeled me in and I was ready to go. <laughs> Wow. What yeah. <laughs> what an adventure. I guess that's a word to, to describe it. No, it was an adventure. <laughs> <laughs> so you come out of the surgery. What happened then? So um, the surgery was a great success. Because this injury is so rare, the, the doctor that performed it, he has only ever seen this once before as a trainee doctor. So he had never actually performed this surgery before he, on oh, his wow. own. Great yeah. confidence then. <laughs> yeah, I have so much respect for surgeons. Like, you know, he was just going about his day and then he gets called yeah. in to do this surgery. So I had eight doctors in my surgery with me because from what I've been told, everyone wanted to get in on the action. and Oh, they all wanted to see it happening. Yeah, and learn because, like, they, mm. don't, they don't happen very often. But it went, from what I've been told, he said it went really well. He was very happy. I knew immediately when I woke up um, that everything was fine because I remember asking them before I went in, how long will I know if I have brain damage straight away? And they said, you'll know straight away. So mm-hmm. massively relieved. I could tell that everything was fine. Um, and the doctor came in and said to me, you won't be able to exercise for five months because you need to let this artery heal. And I remember saying to him, well, I have the Olympics in five months. So that doesn't really work. And he said, you won't be going to the Olympics. Like that's it. And I was obviously devastated, but being I don't know being elite athletes we kind of don't really take no for an answer and I remember sitting in ICU being like to my mum I'm I'm still going like he doesn't know me he doesn't know what I can do so yeah at that point it was not looking good for me to be able to compete in July. 
Were you lucky that you didn't fracture or break your neck? I'm just thinking if the force of the bar coming down onto your neck was able to damage your artery like that, how did it miss your spine? Yeah, and I've seen the gym sent me the footage. Oh, they had it on, they got it on video. On like the CCTV footage. It's pretty, like you said, like I've, I'm so lucky that nothing worse happened because it's like the bath kind of like almost guillotined my neck is probably the best mm-hmm. way to kind of explain it. So yeah, like it was the best outcome, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. A bad situation. Yeah. Mm. So when you weren't allowed to exercise, was there anything else you weren't allowed to do or was it just that you weren't allowed to put strain on your neck? Like what, what was the idea behind that? So you're, you have to think when you kind of exercise, like you put pressure on your vascular system. So when your heart rate goes up, the amount of blood that gets pumped through your arteries or like your veins and your things increases. So they didn't want huge amounts of blood to go through the artery until it had healed. So okay. I had to keep my heart rate as low as possible for the first five weeks just to allow it to heal you just like imagine like a cut like if you cut yourself and it hasn't fully healed properly it can re-tear and that's what they were like if if it re-tears like you're in trouble (laughs) so you've gone from going back to athletics to running pbs to being on the top of your game to sitting on the couch and watching netflix yeah i played um sims (laughs) (laughs) so I haven't played that in years but yeah so they were like you cannot do anything for five weeks at all like do not even go for a walk oh nothing okay not nothing oh that must have been difficult yeah and because they had and because they had taken um harvested the vein out of my leg I had this really massive cut um on the inside of my thigh so I couldn't walk so I remember they tried to, I tried to leave hospital on the Sunday um, because I wanted to go home and I made it halfway down the hall and nearly passed out. Like I nearly Mm. fainted. So the end of February, I'm struggling to even like walk. So yeah, it was like, and I could tell that like my body had, it wasn't like responding and I was, yeah, it was, it was really hard to even walk. That's incredible. Yeah. So you spend the five weeks sitting and lying around. What happened then? So the first like five weeks I sat around, I did a lot of like meditating and I did a lot of research into like visualization and healing your body through visualization. So I like visualized running and my artery healing. So I did all that. And at the end of the five weeks, I had my five week follow-up CT with my surgeon and I kind of said to him like my heart is still set on going to the Olympics and he didn't understand he didn't know that I had actually qualified so he was kind of like and I remember saying to him I don't need to go over a hurdle until June like if you if we can like start doing something slow like if if you just let me do this like you have to at least give me a shot like I understand that it's so unlikely that I'm going to go but you need to at at least let me try so he kind of said, look, your scan looks really good. It's healed really well. As long as you stick to the medical requirements I give you, I'll, I will allow you to try. So we made a decision that every four weeks as we progressed my training, they would scan me with either an MRI, a CT, an ultrasound. And just to make sure that as the training progressed, it wasn't putting any strain on the artery or there wasn't like an aneurysm building or anything like that. Because he said to me, if you damage this, 
I don't know if I can fix it a second time. So it was like, you have to do what you're told. And I was really lucky. Um, Athletics Australia, because I'm sort of an athlete with them, they have a head doctor who got in touch with my surgeon. And they kind of, with my, with the help of my coach, the three of them kind of like made a plan. So we had like a sports doctor, the vascular specialist, and then my coach. And we did a, every two weeks, my coach would kind of send a program and we would start the progression of me getting back to training. So my first session was a three kilometer walk with my heart rate below 130 BPM. (laughs) That's still three kilometers. I was expecting you to say, you know, 500 meters or something quite short that three kilometers sounds like quite a bit yeah like it is when, but when you're like the w- walking pace yeah it was very slow like my friend at the time was six months pregnant and she came and did my first couple of sessions with me <laughs> so we laugh about that now she's like I trained with you for the Tokyo Olympics when I was six months pregnant <laughs> <laughs> I love it <laughs> yeah so that was kind of like what the recovery process looked like so I think it was April, I jogged my first 100 meters. And then it was June, I got the all clear to finally go back to full training. So six weeks out of Tokyo. So the the thing was, even though I had qualified, if, if you get injured between running your qualifier and an event, you have to do what's called proof fitness. So I had to prove to the selection committee that I was still fit enough to go. So even though I wasn't running till the end of July, I had to go over a 400 hurdles before the 30th of June. So I got cleared, I think it was like the 11th of June or something like that. And five days later, I had to go and compete in a 400 meter hurdles off five days training. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So yeah, that was kind of the ballpark that we had. So how did you cope mentally with all of this? Because I'd imagine as someone who's an athlete, you're used to pushing yourself and doing the best you can and you're being told, no, you've got to pull back. You can't do that. How do you deal with that mentally? Oh, it was it was really hard. And the thing was they said with this kind of injury, like you might not know that something's wrong until it's too late. So oh. it's like this every time little headache or every little pain, I was like, <gasps> like freaking, like trying not yeah. to freak out. Like I said, I did a lot of, you know, meditation, which is something that I've never done a lot of. And I was really lucky I had Athletics Australia were able to get me in touch with a psychologist. Um, like I've seen psychologists before, but yeah, so I had like kind of immediate access to, you know, support, which was amazing. And yeah, like I did a lot of like writing. If I was worried or scared about something, I would kind of try and write it down to kind of like pull it out of my head. Yeah, it was really hard. I ended up having to quit my job because I just was not coping. Like, I like it, I just kind of was like, I cannot do both right now. So I yeah, I quit. I quit my job. I was really lucky that you know, as a financial advisor, I've been pretty good with my money. So um, financially, I was able to kind of not work for a period of time. Yeah, so I kind of had to do things to do a lot of work to make it um, like a lot of work on myself to kind of get through that. I lost my driver's license for six months as well, had it medically suspended. So that was a nightmare. I think that mentally was so tough as well because even just going to the gym, I had to kind of coordinate someone to take me there. So yeah, it was really hard, but I did a lot of work throughout the process to make sure that I was okay. Was there ever an option in your head to not go to the Olympics and to just think, I want to focus on this and make sure this doesn't get worse and I don't get sicker? 
yeah, like early on I was like, no, no, like I'm still going to do this. And I think the people around me were like really worried that I wasn't going to do the right thing because everyone's like, Sarah, like, like the Olympics are so important, but you, like this is your life you're kind of dealing with. And I know like my psychologist even asked me that. She goes, is this worth it? Um, which is something that I had to consider. Like it wasn't this whole like, I never had a single doubt. Like there were a lot of doubts that it wasn't going to happen. And early on I was kind of like, is this worth it? But as like, as I kind of got back into training and I know my body so well and I, I know when I'm okay and I adapted really quickly and I started to feel like myself a lot quicker than we thought. So I like exceeded everyone's expectations. So as I kind of got back into running and feeling like myself and feeling better, like I became more and more confident that I could do it. Yeah. So five days after you've been cleared, you run the 400 metres hurdles. How did that race go? It was probably like the most pain I've ever Mm. been in. Because you would have been so deconditioned too. Yeah. And like I had been doing like lots of longer distance stuff because that's like lower intensity. Mm -hmm. Um, Unfortunately, the worst type of training for your vascular system is what 400 hurdlers do. So like you said, I was completely deconditioned. I had done two hurdle sessions. So, but I just, you know, I was like, I just have to get this done. I think, you know, I think that was harder than running at the Olympics, that race, because mm. it was like, I don't even know if I'm going to make it around this track. Like, I have no idea. So, yeah, it was, I was really lucky. My coach, like I said, we're, we're really good friends and she was, I can't even say how incredible she was throughout this whole process like and I know she took on a lot for me so we all we both went together and I had her there but yeah it was really tough I think it took me about half an hour to get off the ground <laughs> oh no oh I like <laughs> but you made it <laughs> yeah I crawled under a tr- I was like sitting under a tree for like half an hour like in a like in the um like fetal position <laughs> oh wow yeah <laughs> with this did after that initial period where you said it obviously affected your brain did it affect that at all or was it more so that you just like did you feel okay what but then they're just telling you that you can't increase your heart rate and all of that like how did you feel within yourself during all of this time did you feel okay and feel like you could go and run or do whatever yeah so that's the thing I like I felt good like I was like I could go and run like that was the hardest part that I felt fine yeah. But it was kind of like... You're fine until and, you're not fine if you push it. Yeah, exactly. Mm. So I had to like pull back on purpose and I was like, I could have, I could keep going. So that, and that's why we kind of had the heart rate limit just to give me like an indicator of where I was. But yeah, like I felt fine and that was the weirdest thing, um, especially kind of once I started running and stuff. Like at the beginning, I was not feeling great. But like I said, I kind of started to adapt quite quickly. So you've, you've run the 400 metres, you're now essentially qualified again or Ooh. re-qualified for the Olympics. <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> what was your next few weeks like? Because you didn't have much time. How did you prepare for the Olympics? So we went into a lockdown the week after I ran my race in oh, Queensland. No. <laughs> so it was so, <laughs> so, oh, many cha- so many hurdles, I'll say, no pun intended. Literally, like we laugh about, I can laugh about it now. And we're like, everything that could have gone wrong went wrong mm. in that six months before Tokyo. So, and I couldn't drive. The local tracks got shut. 
I was lucky I got an exemption to train out of area so I could go to Homebush and train, but I couldn't drive. There was no public transport. So yeah, it was really difficult, but we made it work. Again, my coach, because she she got selected to go to the Olympics as a coach, she had an exemption. So she was able to come with me. So she took me to a lot of my sessions. Yeah, we just kind of threw everything into it. Um, We did the best we could with the time that we had. And I think I did everything that I could with the time that we had. So I I got smashed that last six weeks. (laughs) Wow. So you made it to Tokyo, but you actually watched the opening ceremony from home. Is that right? Yeah. So because of lockdown, we weren't allowed to go and join the rest of the Australian team in Queensland. We weren't allowed in. So (laughs) I watched the opening ceremony from my lounge room. With just me and my partner, like, because we were in lockdown, so it was just us two. And then, yeah, I flew into Tokyo four days before I competed with, though I think there was eight New South Wales athletes. But we we t- we tried to all train together at the same time to kind of, you know, make it a little... We, we kind of had our own little private camp, but just, like, in Sydney. So, yeah, so I flew into Tokyo four days before I competed. And what was that experience like, being at the Olympics? I think because we flew in four days before, it was just really full on, like, because you kind of go from being alone at home to then being in this village. And a lot of the other countries were so blasé about COVID compared to Australia. So, yeah, so it was really not scary, but you're a bit like on edge. And I was kind of like, I do not want to get COVID. Mm. I've been through all of this. It's the last thing you needed. <laughs> yeah, um, we actually had a false positive on our flight. So when we flew into Tokyo, uh, someone on our flight tested positive for COVID. So we had to like wait until their results came back. And so we didn't even know wh- whether we were going to be allowed oh in the village. Goodness. It was just like, at that point, you just laugh. I was just laughing. I was like, this is just, this is just funny now. <laughs> what else could go wrong, really? <laughs> yeah. So, but the village was awesome. Like, it was an awesome experience and like I said, coming out of lockdown, you were with everyone and yeah, it was it was really good and they had the Australian team had set the village up really great. So it was like they had this nice like this big TV where you could all watch all the sports. So yeah, Tokyo was good and I remember when I towed the line, I was just like, This is this is like I was just so excited to race and to be there and I was kinda like, Okay, like we made it. Yeah, with everything that you went through. Yeah. Do you think that it- it was almost a good thing. Like, obviously, I think if none of that had happened, your experience probably would have been a bit different, do you think, and your mindset about racing? Yeah, like going into an Olympics, like you go into PB, like you want to run at your best. And I knew that I wasn't going to run my best. There was no way. So, yeah, it was it was this really different experience where I kind of got to enjoy the experience because I didn't have that pressure on me to perform at my best. Like, I had this different pressure that we had no idea what kind of shape I was in. And, you know, it's really daunting running against the world best when you know that you are in the worst shape that you've been in in four years. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I just got to go and, like, be appreciative for the opportunity, which is, yeah, like a much different mindset than if I had gone at my best, I think. Yeah, and enjoy the yeah. experience around it all as well. Yeah, exactly, and not have, like, yeah, like the pressure to perform on you. So you actually stayed there, though, even though you only got there a few days before. You stayed there for a couple of weeks. Can you talk about why that happened? 
Yeah, so one of the girls who was running in the 4x4 relay, she tore her hamstring 10 days before Tokyo. So they didn't know whether she was going to be able to run. So they asked me to just stay as a reserve just in case something happened and they needed someone to jump in. So I stayed. So I was there for two weeks because I was I was supposed to go home much earlier. Um, so I got to stay the whole time and did some relay training with the girls and like I said, my coach was there. So we just did some extra sessions and yeah, like I got to like soak up the whole experience and I got to go to the closing ceremony, which originally I wouldn't have been able to do. So yeah, I had all this bad luck and then I got there and I got to have this amazing experience. That's fantastic to hear. Everything went well in the end. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So what do you think you've you've learned from all of this? So have you changed as a person? Has your, you were just talking a bit there about your mentality changed a little bit for the Olympics. But what do you think you've learnt from this whole experience that you've been through? That I just love running. That is all I want to do. And I remember like when I was in hospital, like all I thought about was when can I run? Like will I ever be able to run? Like how is this going to affect my running? And that's all I thought about it. It made me kind of realise that that's what I love and that's what I want to do. And it was a huge reason why I quit my job because at the end of the day I was like I don't really care like I, I love my job but I was like that's not what really makes me happy and I was really lucky I, I picked up a part-time job in Wollongong doing financial advice when I got home um, so I'm working a lot less hours so yeah like I've realized that sport's the priority and that's what I love to do and when training gets really hard I'm like you have this opportunity and I think like it's a bit of a bit of a cliche but yeah it really changes like and makes you realize what's important to you. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. A lot of people say that. Yeah. And without going through that, it's often hard to see that. Yeah. And I think just letting myself be happy. I think early 20s, I was about achieving this and getting this qualification and, you know, making this much money. But I think now I'm like, I'm just so like, I have never, this is the most, the happiest I have been in my whole life. And I think it's because, Aww. yeah. And I think it's because I've kind of, you know, realized what makes me happy and I'm putting my time and energy into that, even if it's not, you know, financially the best decision or it's not going to, yeah, make me get this qualification. So, yeah. I absolutely love that. How hard was it for you to go back to the gym after this? Have you done that exercise again? Uh, yeah, like I do step ups but without a bar. <laughs> like it's just like no bars. Like it's been taken because I have I train with I've a squad of three girls who are all four hundred hurdlers. So she's like no step ups for anyone. Um, <laughs> I have to be supervised. Not have to be, but I'm supervised in the gym now. And because I'm working part time, I have the ability to kind of work in with someone and be supervised. So I have um, my coach sets my gym program and. I go and go to the gym and have someone like one-on-one do my session with me. So having that person there, I think has made it really easy because someone's spotting you, but it actually wasn't that hard. I think because I knew I, when I went back into the gym, we did, I didn't have time to kind of be like, oh, I don't know if I want to mm. do this. It was like, I have to just jump straight back in here. Can you take us through what your training is like now? Because you're saying you're working part-time. How, how much training do you do? And yeah, I guess how much time does that take up? My actual sessions take about 12 hours a week. So I do four running sessions, two sessions in the gym, so weights, and then I do a bike session as well. So I train six days and then I get one day off and then I do two sessions on one day. Yeah, so I train within nine to five. So if I have training in the morning, 
I start late and if I have training in the afternoon, I finish early. Okay. Yeah, so it's more like athletics is within my nine to five now. That's good. Yeah. Sounds nice and flexible. Yeah, yeah, it is really flexible. Yeah. And in the lead up, obviously, we've got the Commonwealth Games coming up. I'm presuming you're working towards that. Does the training change? Does your life change? What happens when you're leading up to an event? Our Australian domestic season runs from January to the end of March. So you've got a lot of racing. That can be quite full on because you are often traveling on weekends, like away for comps and stuff. And then you kind of have, right now I've got a bit of a training block before the international season starts. So yeah, you kind of like work in blocks. So at the moment I'm in kind of a specific prep block, which you get absolutely smashed. So like my session this morning, like I'm on, I'm on the ground for 20 minutes in so much pain. Yeah. And then kind of once you kind of get into that racing mode, everything shortens up and you kind of get, get ready to race and run fast. Okay. So is that what's next for you? Yeah. So I'm heading overseas. I've got a race in Queensland, Oceania Championships. So I'll be up, up in Queensland from the end of May and then I'll go straight from Queensland to Europe I haven't qualified for World Champs or Com Games yet. I'm in the process of trying to get the standard. Um, I'm confident that I can do it. I just need some races. So, yeah, I'm heading to Europe, doing a couple of races, and then hopefully that will secure my spot in the team. And I'll head from Europe to Oregon for the World Champs and then back to Europe for Com Games because they're, they're only a week apart this year. Okay. How long do you think it took you from being cleared to be able to run again and train again to getting to what you consider back to your decent fitness or like standard? I took some time off after Tokyo Wu Hotel quarantine, so that was forced. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think I took another two weeks off. So I think it wasn't until kind of January, February that I was starting to feel like at the same position I was. So I was really hard on myself like November, December, I was sort of looking at my times at training because we have a training diary that we keep all our splits and stuff and I was looking at my times and I'm like, oh, I'm not running anywhere near like what I was doing this time last year. So that was really hard and I had to be kind of kind to myself because when I got back from Tokyo, I was still really unfit. So it took a good six months coming back to get back into shape, I feel. But I feel now that I'm in PB shape right now. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. And are you looking towards the next Olympics or are you just looking towards kind of what's happening this year? Yeah, definitely the next Olympics. And I think that's a big decision why I decided to work part-time. I think a big reason why, and I, like, I know when you have things happen, everyone's kind of looking for a why. And I think, you know, I fell in the gym in a exercise that I have done for years and I think it was because I was so exhausted because I was just pushing myself so hard so yeah I've decided to work part-time because I want to see how far I can go so yeah like I think that's that's what I'm aiming for Paris really focus in and give it give it everything I've got and then I don't know what I'll do after then there's a there's a home con games in Melbourne yeah, I saw that. <laughs> yeah, so I was like, oh, because I was like, no, nah, I'll, I'll be done after Paris. That's it. I'm going to retire. But like a homecom games would be a pretty special way to end a career. Mm, we'll see what happens. Yeah. Still got a few years for that. Yeah. So currently outside of your training, you were saying you're working part time and that you do some community work within schools. Can you talk a little bit more about that and, and what you do? Yeah, so the 
Black Dog Institute and AIS have, AIS have this program they've put together where they get athletes to go in and present on the topic of mental fitness. So um, I've been able to go into schools and just talk about, you know, my accident and my experience and my career as an elite athlete and the things I've put in place to make sure my mental fitness is ready and prepared so I can kind of, you know, be the best athlete and person that I am. So I've really enjoyed being able to go and share my story and hopefully, you know, connect with some kids because I feel like at that age, you kind of not really sure. What you, I guess it's like you're kind of in that stage in your life where you're kind of trying to work everything out. And like I said at the beginning, like between the ages of kind of 18 and 22, I didn't really have a complete idea of who I was and what I wanted to be. So being able to kind of share my experiences and what works for me, and I hope that they can kind of take something away from that. Yeah, and just I've been doing a lot of things, just speaking stuff within the community and sharing kind of my experiences. And I'm just really enjoying that. And it's something that I've never been able to kind of do in the past because I've never had the time. Um, yeah, and I just I just like being in the community. I think um, where I live, Wollongong, it's like a really fantastic place and everyone kind of knows everyone. So, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's kind of good to, you know, be a part of the community and um, share my experiences with everyone. Oh, well done. So I do have one final question that I ask everyone at the end of their interviews. If you could go back in time and give your younger self one piece of advice, what would it be? I get asked this question a lot and I always change it depending like what mood I'm in or what's coming up. (laughs) So at the moment, I think my thing would be just to say no. Okay. Yeah. This is something that like at the beginning of the year, I was like, I'm just going to say no more because I've just kind of, you know, not gone along with things, but I kind of just say yes to things if I don't want to do them or kind of don't do things that kind of make me happy or put myself first a lot of the time. Like I spoke on before, like um, I was always wanting to achieve things and, you know, make money. And I'm just kind of like, just say no. Like if you don't want to do it and it doesn't make you happy, just say no. So um, I think that's something that I kind of had told myself a little bit earlier. Like you don't have to do something if you don't want to. And if it doesn't kind of align with you or make you happy or doesn't fit into your life, just, yeah, just, just say no. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Sarah. It's, uh, it's been lovely to meet you and hear your story and hear how well you're doing now after everything that you've been through. Thank you. Yeah, it was, it was really great. I really appreciate the opportunity to uh, share a bit about me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Inspirational Tales. If you're enjoying the podcast, I'd love it if you could please share it with your family and friends so that we can inspire more people. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, please don't forget to leave us a rating or a view and make sure that you have subscribed or followed the podcast on whichever platform that you are listening to it on so that you can stay up to date as new episodes are released. Thanks again and I look forward to you joining me for the next episode of Inspirational Tales.